and from Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. And I'm sorry about my voice this week, but that's what it is right now. First things first. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. That expression, first things first, is a piece of counsel often given to students of business techniques. It is the advice of practically no practicality to those who aspire to worldly success. But accordingly to the Hermetic doctrine, as above, so below, that which works best in one level of life is often is often the best guide to what will work best of, on every other level. If a person is true to his highest priorities, he will generally find that his other needs are fulfilled naturally as well. This is true, certainly, of the church search for God. One of the greatest saints of Jesus Christ was this simple sentence in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Paramahansa Yogananda gave his elder brother Ananta a wonderful lesson in this truth. It was Ananta who had captured him and brought him back from his flight to the Himalayas, described by Yogananda in autobiography of a yogi. In Yogananda's book, he read how Ananta later challenged him in the city of Agra, to pit his divine faith against such practical worldly considerations as the need for earning a living. Fearless, before that challenge, the young aspirant agreed to go by train, without any money, to the nearby town of Brindaban. Not to miss a single meal in Brindaban and not to find his way back to Agra without begging and without in any other way asking for help. In one of the most thrilling chapters in the book, Yogananda fulfilled all the conditions of the test. Yogananda continued the account. As the tale was unfolded, my brother turned sober, then solemn. The law of the man and supply reaches into subtle realms than I supposed, I had supposed. Ananta spoke with a spiritual enthusiasm never before noticeable. I understand for the first time your indifference to the vaults and vulgar accumulations of the world. Late as it was, my brother insisted that he receive diksha, initiation into Kriya Yoga. As the Bhagavad Gita puts it in the ninth chapter, those who worship lesser gods go to their gods, but those who worship me come to me. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Good morning, welcome to Sunday service. My name is Atman, this is Bhakti Marg. It's our pleasure to share with you. And especially to welcome all those of you who are here as visitors or guests to the Expanding Light. We have quite an array of programs this weekend with meditation teacher training starting and yoga therapy and how to meditate and personal retreat. So welcome and welcome to Sunday service. I'm going to continue with 
uh, reading from Whispers from Eternity, which are prayer demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. I have sought to buy everything but thy plenty. I pray now, give me thyself. O God, let me not whine complainingly. What hast thou yoked me to the why hast thou yoked me to the heavy demands of flesh, to constant hunger, a slave to fatigue and earthly discomfort? I blame no businessman for being busy. Dost thou not keep the bee busy constantly? Dost thou not send rain to water the earth, which yields life sustaining crops? If even the skies are darkened with clouds to sprinkle life down upon thirsty crops, who am I to complain so selfishly, so childishly, so uselessly? What about poor me? The master potter of life molded this ball of earth. He kept it busy, ever whirling in its orbit, holding its ray strung to the sun, around which it rotates in ceaseless rhythm. The cosmic potter busily forms by the trillions, fragile vessels of flesh on his revolving wheel of life. The amoeba, the butterfly, the whippoorwill, the gigantic fire-eyed bodies that wander on vast tracts of space, growling their own variants of Om. All must do some aspect of his work. Even the fickle lightning in the sky must do its bit to help with the spraying of timely showers. O Lord of all life, thou art the busiest worker in creation, ever alert, noting the fall of every sparrow, attending to the slightest scratch of flesh, and plotting the course of each meteor. Thou dost produce everything out of thine unseen factory of creation. Thou art the maker and displayer of innumerable artifacts. Thou art also the divine salesman, selling health, mental electricity, and nuggets of wisdom to mankind. And oh yes, thou dost make us pay for everything. We pay in the effort we must put forth to live hygienically and to acquire that food which will buy us good health. We pay coins of self-development for the power that lights the cozy cottage of our minds. And we pay gold nuggets of devotion, perchance, to hold thee to us and ourselves to thee. We must give energy in one form or another for everything we receive. Only thou thyself are not for sale, though some people try to purchase thy favor. O priceless one, what value can be placed on thee? Yet thou givest thyself freely to us when we remind thee that we are thy children, heirs to thy all-encompassing kingdom and part of thy own self. So, seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I think all of us here have probably tuned into the seeking part of that. We're here seeking something more in our lives, seeking God, seeking spirituality. But Jesus is saying more than that in this passage. It's the first part that's a little more difficult to manifest and to put in practice. And I look back with some uh, amusement and perhaps some compassion for myself when I first started on the spiritual path. And one didn't necessarily start with the same attitude that is expressed in this saying. When I first started, I said, oh, spirituality, yeah, I'm interested in that. Let's check this out. Okay, what are the rules? How does this work? What do we do? You know, I was a, a Boy Scout and a Cub Scout. And we, you know, we did these things like merit badges and all the requirements were laid out there and you fulfill all the requirements and you get it signed off and then you get the spirituality merit badge. 
And that's sort of the way I approached the spiritual path. And then there was the physical part of it. And like a good American uh, in American culture, you know, physical. Okay, that means willpower. It means training. It means competition. And so I started on Hatha yoga, seeing uh, how many postures I could do and forcing myself into positions and stretching and training and I was I lived with a, a roommate in Berkeley and we both started yoga at similar times and we had this underlying never mentioned but very much there competition going on <laughs> about you know who could get into this posture first and how many pranayams can you do today and how's this going to work and then there was of course the part the intellectual part and uh, this is where uh, our training in American society and especially mine as a academic excel is okay you know what is the philosophy here how do we master this what is what do we need to do let's get all these precepts down let's have arguments about it let's see how much we can master <laughs> let's uh, let's see if i can uh, grasp this enough that i can tell everybody else what the right philosophy is and it uh, sort of went on that way and fortunately the techniques are powerful enough that you can get past some of that consciousness and you start to realize there's something else more behind that. And especially when I finally made it up to Ananda and I started getting a little bit more deeper into the teachings and started realizing, well, there's a little bit more to approaching this than from the ego-centered methods that I was used to. And there was this one moment that came, there were several moments, but it was, it was a very big revelation. I think it comes to all of us at some point on the path. And it may be this lifetime, it may be another lifetime, it may have already happened in a past lifetime. But there's that realization that what the guru, what God is really asking for us is complete self-transformation. It's not approaching spirituality as you approach the rest of your life. It's changing your approach to life. It's not so much a practice or, a, or an activity as it becomes that central principle. And as Jesus said, seek ye first. It's a first principle. It becomes the pole star, it becomes the center. Everything comes back to that one center point. And that's not so easy to do. It's a lot harder to bring that into the center than it is to start investigating spirituality. And it doesn't have to be that way. As I said, some people may have reached there in a past life. And there's the story of, of Ramakrishna that uh, Swami Kriyananda relates in the path. And he said, there was a woman in India. And she approached her husband and said, husband, I'm, I'm worried about my brother. He's, he's talking about renunciation. He's talking about leaving the world. And, you know, this last week he's been starting to work on all his desires and trying to leave behind his desires and attachments to this world. And I'm getting worried about him. And the husband looked at her and he got this very intense and focused look and he said you do not need to worry about your brother he will never renounce god that way she looked a little surprised and she looked back at him and said well husband tell me how does one renounce god and at that moment he took his garment he ripped them off he ripped a piece of it off the bottom of his cloak wrapped it around his loins turned to his wife and with great intensity said woman from now on, you and all of your sex will be mothers to me. And he turned and he walked out the door never to return. That was renunciation. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And Swami Kriyananda wrote in the past that when he read that, when he heard that story, it touched him deeply. It touched him to his core. If I had heard that story when I first started yoga, I don't think it would have meant anything to me. I would have gone, whoa, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is for me. But Kriyananda had gotten to that point in a past life, and when he did get the autobiography, when he did get the call from his, his guru, he was able to drop everything, take the nest box across the country, and within a week, he was standing in front of his master saying, I want to be your disciple. I want to change my life completely. So it is possible, but for most of us, probably, it's probably not that easy and not that quick because our egoic minds, especially our practical American culture minds or Western culture or probably even world culture these days, wants to know, is this practical? Is this right? I mean, it's been sort of drummed into us by all our friends and our parents. You know, you have to think of your, how are you going to make a living? How are you going to take care of yourself? How are you going to be prosperous? And, you know, the first thing we need to convince ourselves is that God is everything. God does everything. God is, is the one who makes this universe work. If he were to change the climate right now or massively bring a cataclysm, doesn't matter how much you've thought about your own prosperity and how much you have in your bank account, it's over. And so it's, it's time to just, you know, you have to convince yourself that the true prosperity, the true material well-being is related to God. And the most practical thing I can do is turn my attention to putting God first, seek ye first. And then we have, of course, the question of protection, you know, the little ego is always worried about, you know, is this, am I going to be able to survive? And shouldn't I, you know, worry about my own being and protecting it? And then you start reading the stories of those who are on the path about how one of the most practical forms of protection you can have is to offer yourself to God, to offer yourself to a guru. There's hundreds of stories. Swami has a whole chapter in his autobiography, The Path, about God protects his devotees. And there's these wonderful stories in there about trucks careening down the canyon that are magically stopped, about ladders that are about to fall off that get pushed back up, that are, you know, there's just a number of stories. And, and here at Ananda, there's been many, many stories of people protected when a car blows up or their car rolls over and they walk away from it or they fall off the stairs and they just have a, a slight wound instead of could have pierced a vein. It's even interesting that there was one that uh, really touched me recently that I read, and, and that was written by John Parsons, who was uh, Ananda's lawyer, and he stood through us in thick and thin through some rather lengthy litigation, which I won't get into, but he recently wrote a book called uh, A Fight for Religious Freedom. And in that book, he related this little incident, just sort of tucked it in there. And he wasn't a devotee. He was, I mean, I think... He is a devotee, but he wasn't officially on this path and following Kriya Yoga. He was our lawyer. And he said one time he was driving back from one of the, or to one of the depositions or one of the hearings. I think it was he was driving back to the Bay Area, and he was on the freeway. And he pulled up behind this truck that was carrying uh, telephone poles. And he was following it, and he noticed that these poles were starting to move and to bounce around. And he looked up, and he realized with horror that the the lashing of these poles had come loose and they were starting to bounce and he got, oh my God, I have to get past this truck. But before he could get past the truck, 
one of the poles bounced off and bounced right in front of him in his car, and he said, okay, this is it. And he just sort of said, oh, you know. And instead of falling onto his car, it fell in a way that he said, I still can't imagine how gravity could have ever made it do that. It bounced and bounced off the freeway and over his car, and he was able to get past unharmed and with no accident. So, you know, God protects the devotees. These things happen, and it is the most practical thing to focus oneself first on God. And then the last objection that I wanted to bring up, which is maybe it's the hardest for, for some of us to get past. It's like, is this going to be any fun? <laughs> you know, if I give myself to God and the spiritual path, I mean, you know, I'm going to be sitting in a cave in a loincloth and, you know, it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be terrible. But the wonderful thing about the spiritual path is you tune in a little bit the source of all joy, of all bliss, of all true happiness comes from our connection to God. It's not outward in the material things. Those are counterfeit pleasures that always lead us onto a high and back down. If you want to get to that true sense of happiness, that true bliss, that true even keel, it really is the spiritual path. It really is tuning in to God. And so the, the secret is the spiritual path is fun. It's blissful. It's happy. So, okay, we've put aside, you know, our practical doubts of the rational mind. We're ready, ready for the spiritual path, ready to put God first. So then what happens? Well, then we come up against our own consciousness. And that one is not so easily put aside because consciousness is all our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, all these things that have been trapped inside here for incarnations, our ways of thinking, our ways of looking at the world. I like to think of it as a sort of an ecosystem, that our consciousness is this ecosystem inside us. And just like uh, out in nature, an ecosystem has the minerals and the soil and the flows of water and certain plants are nourished and certain animals come there and the insects. And, you know, everything works together in this symbiotic, balanced whole, these relationships together. But then what happens? And some pollutant comes into the ecosystem. And next thing you know, there's a, some, there's a little poison and certain plants can't survive anymore. And certain things that were, certain birds start dropping off and it doesn't really work anymore. Well, our, our consciousness, our consciousness is like that ecosystem. And what happens when the pollutants of anger or greed or seeking revenge start coming in and getting in there? Those start growing and these invasive species start moving out the wonderful plants of kindness and of loving thought. And it's next thing you know, the ecosystem is being taken over by these forces or it may even become completely barren as one thing that's been pushed in there, a materialist desire or something, suddenly pushes everything off and out of balance. But the good news is, as we say in, you know, in sustainability these days, you can restore ecosystems. And so what's important is to planting and nourishing those plants, those trees, those minerals, which will help grow the qualities that you'd like to grow. And that will, in itself, open up to new possibilities and be brought in so that the seeds of devotion is the key plant to plant here. A devotion, a putting God first, a sense of something bigger is happening in my life. I'm not just planting my business plant and my 
my child plant and my family, I'm actually putting, the main thing I'm putting my attention to is to build the soil of devotion. And from that, all these other things will spring and they will open up into this grand and glorious ecosystem which will then bring the right consciousness in, which will then make it possible for that divine which is all around us to flow through and to come in there. But one has to be very vigilant in that garden and to get the right plants planted and the right things in that garden. And when we start thinking about uh, putting God first or God alone or devotion-centered, often I think of Gyanamata. Gyanamata was a disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda's. He said she was his foremost woman disciple. She lived with him for 20-some years in his ashram. But she came to him as a fairly late in life. And in the previous part of her incarnation, she was a, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, she was born in 1870 or something like that. She lived in Seattle and had a family. She was the wife of a very well-known lawyer who was actually at one point the dean of the University of Washington Law School. She had a son and she took care of her husband. She helped write his speeches. She was the dutiful woman of the early 20th century, standing in the background and supporting all these other family members in her life. Her son had bouts of, uh, who's also a lawyer, had bouts of uh, nervous disease, nervous breakdown. She had to take care of him. She took on taking care of an orphan, uh, a teenage girl who didn't have anywhere else to go, who was afflicted with severe arthritis and had to be nursed continually. She also took care of her aging mother, who was quite a uh, demanding character and would always be calling to her, Edith, Edith, where are you? Come up here, Edith. And so this was her life. And in the same time, she was very interested in spirituality and metaphysics and God consciousness. And she put a lot of effort into reading the Gita and finding you know, all these spiritual teachings. But her life was basically focused on her family. And she said, you know, I really only had two places in the house that were really my own, that were my space. There were two little attics in the corner of the second floor. One, I hung the sheet and I hung my clothes in with all the cobwebs. The other one, I put an army cot in and that's where I went and did my meditation in the morning. And, you know, that was, there was still some attachment, some resentment. And at this one point, a spiritual teacher came to visit her. It wasn't Yogananda yet, but it was another teacher. And she started recounting to him how her life was going and what it consisted of and, you know, basically the difficulties of her life. And this uh, spiritual teacher just listened with great intensity and just nodding his head. And, and he said, uh, finally, with no sympathy, with no, oh, you poor dear, oh, you're so sorry, he said, you're living for God. Do not be attached to any outward phenomena. And Gyanamata said, at that point, she felt this huge light in her consciousness, a bright, blinding white light that said, yes, I am a seeker of God. And all this is me doing service, turning to God. Who am I to worry about these things? She said, who am I to pay attention to this little tearful, whining, complaining self? She has such a great way of putting these things. And that little tearful, whining self, she just, put aside. He said, if he had given me some kind of sympathy, if he had said, 
oh, you know, yes, that's, that's very difficult. Maybe you could try this. Instead, no, he got me right where I needed to hear. said, you're living for God. It's martyrdom. Leave the rest of the stuff aside. And after that, she was able to continue on her path. She moved to the Guru's ashram, to Yogananda's ashram. She spent the last 24 years of her life in, in great pain and great suffering, but always giving everything back to God, always saying, yes, Lord, whatever comes to me, change nothing, just change myself, change nothing that comes to me, just change how I react. And Yogananda said that at the end of her life, she was liberated, that she reached uh, final liberation. So it's putting that, that God-centered first. And how do you do that? Well, it's you. this is where we get to the other part of the reading today. It's if you worship the lesser gods, you go to those gods, those who worship me come to me. Thoughts are important. What's happening every moment, every single instant right here, right now, is where we have to pay attention. And Jesus, as this, this quote comes from the Sermon on the Mount, and in other places in that he said, you know, think not for the morrow, what you'll put on, what you'll eat. Focus on today. The evil of the day is sufficient thereof. So just look at what's right in front of you, what's happening right now. And it doesn't mean that you're going to change completely what's outside of you. It just remains, you have to see where am I, what am I worshiping? And uh, Kriyananda said worship, in this case, he defined it as focusing one's attention on a presumed good, whether real or imaginary. So we can worship things that aren't very real, that are just imaginarily going to give us this great good that we want. And if we're constantly thinking about how we're going to increase our bank account or how we're going to move up the corporate ladder or how we're going to achieve success, those thoughts, you're looking for something in the future that's good, you're worshiping them. Well, what happens? You might become a very successful businessman or an artist or a a mother or a teacher, but your consciousness is going to go to that which you are worshiping. And what you want to do is put that devotion, that centeredness, uh, firmly at the forefront. And it, it might be outwardly you're doing exactly the same thing. I mean, it used to be on the spiritual path that you would enter a monastery and you sort of, you know, take off, you get rid of all your clothes, maybe your parents gave an endowment to the monastery, and there you are, you're set for the rest of your life, you put on your robe, you walk through, and all you have to do is, is focus on obeying what your superior tells you and doing your worship practices. Well, that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't, but we're in a different age and that's not really what's been given to us, what we're being asked to do. We're being asked on this path that Yogananda brought that was through the teachings of Swami Kriyananda. We're being asked to live in the world and spiritualize everything we're doing in the world. And the only way you can do that is to pick it up by the right string. It's like a puppet where all these little pieces of wood that are tied together by a string. If you pick it up at the wrong one, it hangs kind of a strange way. But if you pick it up from the one that comes right out of the head, behold, there's a whole figure, a whole person. So picking it up by that right string is critical. It's not what you're doing. So say you're a a businesswoman and you want to start a a business. You say, wow, yoga is really big these days. I'm going to do some yoga clothing. And I'm going to start selling these things that can help out and, uh, you know, create things for yoga. Well, there's two ways to approach this. The more ego-centered way is, okay, I need to make a lot of money because I have a family. 
and I need to support them. And I, you know, my self-esteem comes from the fact that my mother always told me that I need to amount to something in life. And for her, that meant some kind of worldly success. And the Rotary Club will admit me if I'm a successful businessman so, or businesswoman. So I need to put all my attention into you know, what are my finances? What are my products going to be? What do I do with my competition? How can I get my employees to work to the best of their ability? All these questions that come up. Outwardly, you could approach the same business from a much different consciousness, and you could still look at all the same things, the finances, the competition. So what do you do? But you say, I think this is what God wants me to do right now, that I can support myself. I can change. I think I need to go through some lessons. I'm going to be taught some lessons in the world. If I do this business, I'm going to be rubbing my shoulders with people. I'm going to be tested in the cold light of day. Can I stay centered? Can I stay focused in myself? I'm going to earn money, which I can help support a spiritual work. I can help support my neighborhood, my family. I can give of myself that this is, I'm doing this not for me, but for God. God wants me to do this. Guru is asking me to do this. Outwardly, the business may look identical. Inwardly, it's very different. And the, very, the difference is that seed of devotion. And in India, they call it the bhav. The bhav, you have to get clear about your bhav. And the bhav is once how both how you relate to the divine. How do you imagine the divine? In what way can you conceive of this infinite being, or this infinite force that you can relate to? The other part of it is, what attitudes does that bring in me? How do I relate to that, to that being, to that God? That determining what that is, latching on to something, being clear about it, it can change, but you can't sort of be wishy-washy and moving around. You have to be clear. This is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm looking, I'm serving my guru. I'm serving divine mother. I'm serving God in nature. I'm serving God in other people. But hold on to that and keep that as the pole star, as of the center and seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you.